Turn to page 1,900 in your pew Bibles. 1,900. Where we find our scripture reading for tonight. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. You know the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and sufficient word. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Um, back in my day, and I say that like I'm old now, but I realize that more and more the music that I listened to growing up is being called like classic rock now, which is disturbing, isn't it, Josh? So back in my day, um, one of the biggest bands, and this was a band that blew up on the scene, and this was a band that changed, in many ways, the way that the world thought of and considered Christian music. And they became so popular that I think it, it became fun to make fun of them. And uh, that band is Creed. You know what I'm talking about, right? And one of the first songs I heard from Creed before I even knew that they were a Christian band, and, and I say that term Christian lightly because Scott Staff, the, the lead singer, had a lot of problems that were very public, um, was, the, was the song Higher. And if you read the lyrics to Higher, you realize what they're singing about, what they're talking about. They're talking about heaven and the world to come. And the song starts like this. When dreaming, I'm guided to another world, time and time again. At sunrise, I fight to stay asleep because I don't want to leave the comfort of this place. Because there's a hunger, a longing to escape from the life I live when I'm awake. So let's go there. Let's make our escape. Come on, let's go there. Let's ask, can we stay? Can you take me high? I gotta do the Scott Stapp voice. Higher to a place where blind men see. Can you take me higher to a place with golden streets? That song blew up. Everybody listened to that song. Not just Christians, not just youth group people. Everybody, the whole world listened to that song. If you go look that song up on YouTube right now, you'll see it has. 20, 30, 40 million views. 
It was a song that was popular worldwide because, in essence, that song spoke of the deep inner reality in people, in all people made in the image of God, and that the, the place that they're in right now is not the ultimate place, that there is something better, there's something better that they dream about, a place that's better than the place that they live now, a place that they long for, a longing in their heart. That's why Ecclesiastes says, God, you've placed eternity in our hearts. And that's what Creed is singing about in this song, Higher. They're singing about the Christian truth. And that is, you'll actually be no earthly good if you aren't heavenly minded. You've heard those people say, right? So heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You'll never meet a person like that. Because the Bible teaches it is those who are fixated upon heaven. And the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom to come. And the place where Jesus Christ is that are the most earthly and good. And so, let's consider that tonight as we think about how John is teaching that to us in this passage. By the way, this theme statement that I'm uh, writing here, it is a quotation of one of the things that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. The most important thing we have to do in this world is to prepare ourselves for the world to come. The most important thing we have to do in this world is to prepare ourselves for the world to come. So we have three points tonight. The first is the Father's love. The second point is the world's lostness. And the third point is the believer's longing. Once again, these points and these break, uh, breakdowns of these points... Um, I am indebted to Steve Lawson's Bible study in the book of 1 John. So, verse 1a. John, 1 John chapter 3. Remember, you've got to remember is that there is no, there are no chapter breaks or anything like that in the original letter. It's just a letter written. And so you see in verse 28 and 29 of, the, of the, the, the previous section, Now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John is introducing the concept of Christ's return. And then he says, dear children. So he's, he's, un, he's speaking to them as, they're, as he's about to identify them as the children of God. And then if you know that he is righteous, that is Jesus, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So he's connecting Jesus' um, 
identity, his reality with those who belong to him, right? And this is going to show up as a repeated pattern in the section that we're looking at right now. So then he goes into uh, the third chapter here. And John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Um, see or how. This is something that says, look at this. Be bewildered by this. What great love. It's almost as if John is saying, look at this. I want you to look at this, the love that the Father has for us. Think about this. Consider this. Be amazed by this. How great it is. And in fact, these, these words, how great, in the Greek is one word. And the literal meaning of this word is, is, is quite interesting. How great is of what country? Of what country? What does that mean? Why, why are our translators saying how great? Because the emphasis is meant to be this is a love that's out of this world. You can't look at a country and say that's where it comes from. You're saying it's alien. It's foreign. It's out of this world. This love is foreign to anything that we've experienced. It comes down from above. It's a heavenly love. And John later, and this same letter, is going to expand upon this love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. Look at some of these things that John is going to, to, to say about God's love. And this is important because many, many people today are saying God is love, meaning God doesn't condemn, God doesn't have a category for sin. God simply accepts because that's what love is defined as in our day and age. It's just blanket acceptance, right? But John defines God's love. Look at what he says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. So this is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Is it loving to accept somebody in their sin? According to what John says, love is that God did not accept us in our sin, but rather sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And then, first of all, 
ending here, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God is the initiator in this love story. See what great love the Father has loved on us. See what he has done for us. The love of God is the life of God in the soul of man. God loved us. I want you to think of this. God loved us when we were wretched. God doesn't love us because we are valuable. We are valuable because God loves us. God doesn't love us because we are lovable. His love transforms us into what is lovable. He is the initiator. He is the one that looked down upon a sinful humanity and he said, I'm going to send my son. He is going to redeem them from their sins. He is going to make them beautiful. He's going to make them a bride in their wedding gown, like on their wedding day. He's going to wash them. He's going to cleanse them. He's going to purify them. And he is going to redeem them. When what he could have said, damn them all to hell. And in this context, this is how John wants us to think about this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. One of the things that I intended on mentioning this morning when I talked about the, uh, the, the reality that Joseph was the favored son, right? Right? And that favored son position is what typifies him in that position of Jesus Christ, who is the favored son of God. He is the unique son of God, the monogamous. He is the only begotten son of God, right? But the crazy thing about the way God brought about redemption is that through Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, the one unique son of God, he made us sons and daughters of God through adoption. So, the judge pardons us, right? He says, I am pardoning you from your sin because this one is taking your punishment. He's taking your punishment, right? And just so you know, the one who's taking your punishment, I'm the judge. I'm pardoning you from your sin because the one who's taking your punishment is my son. He's taking the punishment for the crimes that you committed, right? But that's not where the gospel ends. And sometimes when we think of it in the judicial sense, we lose sight of a more beautiful picture. We lose sight of a more full picture of the gospel. Then the judge says, that's not where it stops. You are a beggar. You are an orphan. You don't have a home. You don't have a place. And not only am I pardoning you of all the crimes you've committed, not only is my son taking the punishment for those crimes, but here are adoption papers. I am signing them. You are now my son. You are now my daughter. You belong at my table. I will take care of you. I will provide you. You belong to this family now. That's really the full picture of the gospel. It's not just justification, it's adoption. It's adoption. We are sons and daughters of God, and that's our reality now. So not only is Joseph the favored son in that picture, right, that points to Jesus, but we become co-heirs with Christ. And one of the craziest things in the Bible that I have to ponder over and over again because 
my shame and my struggle with sin makes it hard for me to say this and believe it. Is that the book of Hebrews says that Jesus calls us brother, sister. One of the more beautiful pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament comes in the most unlikely situation. David makes a covenant with Jonathan, right? They love each other like brothers. It is a deep and powerful love and a brotherhood and a companionship. But Jonathan knows that his family is facing doom because of Saul, his father's turning away from the Lord. He's been forsaken by God. Their family's been forsaken by God. And when all that comes to settle and the dust settles, the only person left in the family of Saul and the only person left is Jonathan's son Mephibosheth who was dropped on his escape from Jerusalem who is a cripple now, and he can't even walk. He can't even care for his own land. And what happens? David looks at Mephibosheth, this rat, this dirty worm, this somebody who shouldn't even be allowed to live, and he says, you now belong to my family. You sit at my table. I will care for you. I will provide for you. That's really a picture of the gospel. And that is how great the love the Father has lavished on us. Has abundantly poured out on us. That we should be called children of God. And it's almost like John himself doesn't believe it. That's why he turns around and he says, and that is what we are. Because he knows as his audience reads this that they're not going to believe it. That he doesn't believe it. So he's got to say it again. He's got to say no, you don't understand. That's really what you are. Hold, hold on, I gotta tell you again. I gotta tell you again. You are a child of God. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That is how lavishly the Lord has poured out his love on you. You're not just forgiven. Right? When the, when the prodigal son came home, he said, Listen, all I want to do. It's just be a servant in your house. All I want to do is just work like one of your slaves. Just put me to work like one of your slaves. I don't even deserve to be a, a, a son in your house anymore. I don't even deserve to be called your son. And what does the father do? He runs out to him. He embraces him. He puts his ring on him. He slaughters the fattened calf and he says, we're having a party. The son that I lost, I thought he was dead. He's alive. We don't even in this life, begin to understand a fraction of the love God has for us. Because if we did, if we really began to understand it, I promise you, it would light a fire in you. It would change the way you live. It would change the way I live. But what about the world's 
lostness. There's a second part to this verse. When John says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In other translations it says, for this reason the world does not know us. That points back to what the Father's love has accomplished in us. That he has destined us for a new world. So we're in this world, but we're not of it. The world knows us because it has objective, tangible facts about us. It knows where we live. It knows our address. It knows our debit card numbers. It knows our, our birth certificate tells us that we are born in this state uh, to these parents at this hospital. Um, but it doesn't really know us. The evil world system cannot figure us out. We are an enigma to them. We are mind-boggling to them. We are a mystery. We don't operate like they operate. We don't think the way they think. We don't make decisions the way they make decisions. You know why? Because the world, the evil world corrupt system is always thinking about them. How to put themselves forward. How to make it farther for them in life. How to make the most money. How to be successful. How to get as much as they can in as little time as they have. They only live once and they want to live it up. They want to enjoy it. They want to take everything in. They want to have heaven now because they aren't thinking about the hell that comes later. They want to say this is their best life. They want to live it now. They're not thinking that there's a life that is better to come. They're trying to get all they can. They're trying to take it all in. And it's all about number one. It's all about me. It's all about I. It's all about those first-person situations and the gospel and what Jesus does in us as he makes us people that are about other people. I thought about this a lot lately because I think when When you're still struggling with, with sins in your life that plague you, that are temptations on a regular basis, it's very easy to become self-focused in your prayer life and your devotional life. When your life is racked with problems um, about financial pressures and the way that you're going to be able to do this or that, your life becomes smaller. You begin to think about you. You begin to think about how you can alleviate these things in your life. And, and your prayer life and your devotional life can be a lot about that. Lord, help me with this. Lord, help me with that. Lord, make it easier for me to resist temptation. Give me your grace. Give me your mercy. And, and I look at my prayer life. I look at my devotional life. And I realize that it's a lot like that. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that in essence, but I think sometimes when we do that, we forget. We forget. That the example that Christ set for us is to think of others. Is to put others first. And what I think I miss 
is that if in my prayer life, I took a little bit of time to say, Lord, help me with these things that are going on in my life, but I took more time to say, Lord, be with this person, and Lord, be with that person, and Lord, work in that situation, and Lord, help this person, that those sins in my life that I continue to struggle with, those sins that are focused on, that I'm focusing on because of the... I'm making those, I'm, I'm committing those sins because of self-centeredness. I'm committing those sins because of selfishness. I'm committing those sins because I'm falling to the world's evil system of I, I, me, me. That if I begin to focus on others and the way that I can serve others and the way that I can, that's actually how I kill that sin. That's actually how I kill the sin in my life. You see what I'm saying? We are selfless as Christians. They're selfish. They think it's crazy that on Sunday, rather than going out to golf or fish, we gather in a building and we hear the word of God proclaimed to us that convicts us and challenges us. And the craziest thing to them is that at some point in our service, we open up our wallets or our purses and we put money as the basket comes along so that we can support those who are in need, so that we can be blessing others. We are otherworldly. They are worldly focused. We are thinking of the eternal. They are fixated on the temporal. Why? Why is that? Why does John mention this here when he says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him did not know him. John is pointing back to the things that Jesus said. The Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't figure him out. They rejected him. They saw him as a madman, a drunkard, a demon-possessed man. And 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 says that if they had known that he, who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. John 1 says he came to his own and his own did not accept him. And you, you need to understand that what John is saying here is that we are grafted into Christ. We are united to him. We are following him. We are filled with his spirit. We are being conformed more and more into his likeness. We're becoming more like him. And that's why we are not understood by the world. Because the world didn't understand Jesus. The world could not accept Jesus. The world hated Jesus so much they killed him. And the more and more we are becoming like Jesus, the more and more the world looks at us with a puzzled look on their face. And they go, I just don't understand. And that's a mild way of putting it. Sometimes they look at us and say, you follow another sovereign, another Lord that's higher than the, the sovereign of the Lord that we want to use to control you and to manipulate you. And so that's a threat to us. We need to understand that friendship with the world is to be at enmity with God. That if we're comfortable in the world, that if we hang out with our unchurched friends and it doesn't seem like there's any difference between them and us, there's nothing that distinguishes us from them. I understand that we have a shared humanity. I understand that there is the image of God in both of us, and so we have that connection. But ultimately, there needs to be a sense of which the, what we're about and the, and, the, and the mission that we're on and the life that we're living is not just about the day. 
It's not just about day to day. It's not just about week to week. It's not just about hour to hour. But that we're living for a kingdom to come, a city that is greater. And because of that, we're different. We stand out. I think of this often when I think of worship. Somebody who's not a Christian should come into worship and maybe be a little uncomfortable because what's going on here is spiritual and it's otherworldly. And there's a heaviness and a depth to this that should be felt by somebody who is worldly and very fleshly and very in this world, right? Our final allegiance and our affections are set upon the one who lives in another realm. Think of what Colossians chapter 3 says. One of those great Ascension Day passages. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's a couple things to think about here. There's a danger sign for us when we're no longer a mystery to the world and we start making sense to our unsaved family members and work associates. Work associates. If your church makes sense to the world and you're in the wrong church, this is why it's important also to marry in the Lord. How can you have connection with people uh, with, with uh, someone who's your spouse, if you're destined for another world and they're in this world, you're not, you're not, not going to be able to connect the way you're meant to connect. Another thing it, it, it should ha- cause us to do is treasure Christian fellowship. And it should also remind us of the patience we should have with those who are in the world. There's this final point. The believer's longing. Verse 2 and 3. He says, Dear friends, dear beloved, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Of course, this referencing back to 1 John 2, 28, John then begins to speak again of the return of Christ. And the reality is it's not really clear or fully known what will happen at his coming. Here's a question have you ever thought of. Uh, What age will we be in heaven? Will somebody who dies at age 90 be a 90-year-old in heaven for the rest of their life? Somebody who died at age 4, there's going to be little toddlers running around in heaven. What age are you going to be? Is there some calculation that we can punch in to figure out what the perfect age is? 25. We'll all be 25. I have no idea. We don't know everything. Will we look the same? Will we recognize each other? So there are many things that we, we don't know, you know, um, about that. But we do know some things. And this is what John says about the things that we do know. And the first is, what we will be has not yet been made known, but what we know, we know that when he appears. So the first thing that we know is that he will appear. That Jesus will appear. That Christ is going to appear. He's going to be made visible. He's going to be made manifest. Um, his, his appearance will be sudden. 
It will be unexpected. It will be personal. It will be bodily. It will be visible. It will be dramatic. And it will be powerful. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, With the trump of the archangel, everybody will know that Jesus has come. There won't be some hidden place in the earth that won't, that will, won't hear about Jesus' return until news finally travels to them. I don't know how that's going to happen, but everybody will know. The second thing that we know we will see him. We will see the Lord. See means we will actually gaze upon him with our very own eyes. We will see him as he is in all his glory. We shall have the beatific vision. We will gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're going to see him. And the third thing that we know is that we will be like him. We will be like him. So John says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, this is actually one area that I disagreed with Steve Lawson. He said that these things were backwards and that we should actually understand that we will have to be made like Jesus before we can actually see him, that we will have to have put on our transformed, resurrected bodies in order to fully gaze upon and take in the glory of Jesus Christ. I understand what he's saying. He's talking about how... In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how the mortal shall have to take on immortality, um, that we are going to have to be transformed, in essence, in order to be uh, able to behold Christ in all his glory. But what um, I don't think Steve Lawson was taking into consideration is that many other scriptures talk about this, this um, relationship between gaze upon, gazing upon the glory of Jesus Christ and actually being transformed into his likeness. Well, this is actually what Paul talks about in the second Corinthians chapter three. Paul says, "Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That's because Moses went up on the mountain right, and he was in the presence of the Lord, and when he came down from the mountain, he was glowing. He was actually glowing because he received from that experience by being in the presence of the Lord a, a an uh, that glory was actually transferred to him. But that glory was fading. So as that glory was fading, Moses covered his face because the, the glory, the shining of his face was going away. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Paul's talking about the Jews there. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What is Paul saying? He's saying, as we gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do that right now by faith, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. 
what John is talking about is that when that gazing upon Christ's glory transfers from gazing upon Christ's glory by faith to an actual in our presence, we are gazing upon that glory in Jesus Christ, the transformation will be made complete. As we see Christ in all his glory, so shall we become like Christ in all his glory. That the actual looking upon Christ is the transformative measurement. It's the transformative means by which we are the ones who take off mortal and put on immortality. That the resurrection bodies that we have will be bodies that can take in all of the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth in all the glory of the new king of kings and lord of lords that will be transformed not only outwardly but inwardly also that will be finally done away with all our sinful flesh and all our lustful desires and all that will be left is the new creation which has begun in us which is at war and fighting always against the old person the old flesh right and that new creation then also will be intensified We'll finally live as God intended for us to live, purity of heart, purity of mind, purity of will, completely 100% devoted to Christ, completely 100% devoted to God, and, and living our lives out as he's called us to. And that is what awaits us, and it's a beautiful thing. And this is what John ends with then. Everyone who has this hope. The hope of the beatific vision, the hope of gazing upon the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, seeing him, and by seeing him, our resurrected and ascended Savior being transformed completely into his likeness. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. We're fixated on Christ and the hope of our promised future in Him. And because we have this fixation, we're called to grow in godliness and holiness. We must be active in the pursuit of preparing ourselves for the eternal. We must commit our entire bodies, hearts, minds. We must be living sacrifices, our bodies devoted to the praise to the Lord. We must purify our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our feet, our hands. We must purify our whole lives to God. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones says the most important thing we have to do in this world is to prepare ourselves for the world to come. And how do we do that? We do that now the same way that we will do it in completion, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do that now by beholding the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And as we are beholding him, as we look upon the author and perfecter of our faith, we strive Strive. And even though we might only have a, a small start of that in this life, we're called to this work of transformation by the grace of God until the end of our life, depending not on our own efforts, but on the unction and power of God's Spirit within us. Everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. We look upon Christ, he is the pure one, he is the holy one, he is the perfect one. And as we gaze upon his glory, as we look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, we too are being purified, we too are growing in our likeness to him. And we continue to do that. We do not take our gaze away, we continue to do that day by day, year by year, until that faithful day comes. When Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead.
and we are transformed. That song by Creed goes on in the second verse to say this, Although I would like our world to change, it helps me to appreciate those nights and those dreams. But my friend, I'd sacrifice all those nights if I could make the earth and my dreams the same. What's he saying? He's saying, even though life here on earth is hard, it makes me appreciate those dreams I have of a greater country to come, of heaven. But he would get rid of all those dreams if he could have heaven come to earth. And the only way that's going to happen, he says, the only difference is to let love replace all our hate. And what Creed was talking about in that song really is going to happen. Heaven is going to come to earth. Christ is going to come again to make all things new. That we are going to live on a renewed creation in our resurrection bodies. That there is going to be a day where we're going to live in a place where blind men see, a place where there's golden streets, a crystal sea. That that's the destiny that awaits us. And as that is the destiny that awaits us, the most important thing that we can do in this world is to prepare ourselves for the world to come. To call others to prepare themselves for the world to come. To call our children to prepare themselves for the world to come. That is what we're all living for. What we're experiencing now is a bleep. That is forever. How are we living right now in light of forever? Amen. We pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us. Help us to live, not just for tomorrow, but for eternity. By your grace, at work in us. By your love, at work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.